Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all in Aloha. I had the chance to be in Hawaii last week, and um, it was a, a wonderful time. We say goodbye to our kids and our junior hires as they head out. Um, had a, a great opportunity there to um, be a part of the celebration of life service for a man who was like a mentor to me. And um, I want to just say this about, about that whole experience. I've shared this with a few people. I feel like I got a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like in this way. Um, not Hawaii is like heaven to me, actually. <laughs> I, whenever I'm in Hawaii, I'm just like, oh, is there anything here for me, Lord? No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, I want to be here with you. But the truth is, it was a glimpse of heaven in this way that here's a, a man, if you don't know who he is, Lauren Cunningham, is the founder of Youth with a Mission. He was uh, is in the Guinness Book of World's Record for preaching the gospel in literally every continent, every nation, and every territory in the United States, like crazy, or in the world, excuse me, three million miles plus on his uh, travel log. Um, but but on his gravestone, it, it says um, that his obedience to God opened the door for millions of people, and that's not an exaggeration. And I was one that the door was open for to really discover calling, to really catch a and capture a heart for the nations of the world and for preaching the gospel. Um, but it was like heaven in this way that people came from every tribe and tongue and nation, right? That that they just bombarded the Big Island, and it was thousands of people that were there. And the setting was like this. We're worshiping Jesus, right? Because he wasn't really one to bring attention to himself. He was always bringing it back to the Lord. And so we're worshiping Jesus. And every once in a while, you get a little tap on the shoulder. And you turn around. It was like, no way. And you would just a big embrace. Why? Because it was somebody that you met in Africa 20 years ago. And they're like, hey. And you're hugging on them. And you see all over the place. And don't you think heaven's going to be a lot like that? Where we get this awesome reunion, worshiping the Lamb, loving Jesus. And we get to see one another again and be reunited. And so um, I left that place really encouraged. And I'm grateful that um, you allowed me to go. Um, you didn't know that you all took a vote, if I could go or not. But I, you <laughs> I, you allow me to go because we have such a great staff and such a great team that it's, it's, the church is always in good hands. And so thank you, everybody, and thank you, Pastor Andy, for preaching last week. I also want to bring um, greetings from Halani Church in Hulualoa, up in the hills in Kona, in up, up above Kona, Hawaii. And it's a church that I've had a chance to preach at two times, and, and uh, I sure love it. There's a handful of people that gather in an 1835 uh, uh, wood a-frame church building with wooden pews, no screens on the windows, open air. You're preaching here. I was telling Jimmy, you look out over there. There's the Pacific Blue, beautiful ocean. Uh, they, they ring the bell at 10 a.m. They start at 10, too. They ring the bell at 10 for the community to come. And then they ring it again at 10.15 saying, it's still okay if you come, even if you're late. Just come. And uh, there's a handful of people that gather to worship, but it's such a beautiful community. When I say handful, I'm saying like 10 to 20, right? It's a small gathering. And maybe sometimes on a big Sunday, 35 to 50. But they're involved in one another's lives. Everybody's auntie, everybody's uncle. Everybody knows what's going on. They have a time called prayer and praise where people share prayer requests and they give a praise on what God's doing one by one. And you know what I told them? Because sometimes we think success looks like a big building with a ton of people and it's the lamest pastor thing when you go somewhere and they're like, how many people are in your church? It's like the worst question to ask, right? As if success means the number of people that come to hear you every week. Hopefully we all come because we want to worship Jesus. Amen? So 
but when you're a part of something that feels small, sometimes you can think that it's insignificant. But what I had the experience of when I sat there, I thought to myself, and I told them this, I said, you know, if the Apostle Paul was to just fast forward history and walk into this place, he would walk in having listened to your worship, which was amazing, done with ukulele, right? And by the way, Ben, they played, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving and, on ukulele. But, um, but they, they, I said, if he were to walk in, he would just go, oh, yeah, this is church. I think he would feel right at home with the, the reality of the early, I don't know why I'm preaching this right now. I have so much to talk to you about, but um, with the reality of what the early church, the, the church in the New Testament was these families of believers that everybody had a part. People could talk in church. They could ask questions and stuff. Could you imagine? I said, he would just go, yep, this is church. And I said, I often wonder sometimes if you were to walk into some of our gatherings with like, you know, like a strobe light, laser light show going and like the pastor emerging from the bottom of the stage, like, I've come to preach to you today. You know, like if, if he would go, what is this? Right? Yet one feels like success and the other feels like maybe we're not making it. So anyways, when Jesus is glorified, it's a success. When, no matter how many people come, when Jesus is the center of our worship, when he is the one who is speaking to our hearts and minds, when his name is glorified, man, we're winning. Amen? Amen. Well, before, um, before I get into the message, I have a couple of family matters to discuss with you. Number one, next Sunday is going to be our annual business meeting, and we're going to do something different this next Sunday. Usually we have like the, the church service time, and then we'll do our meeting after, but we're going to make the church service our meeting because we have so many good things to talk about to glorify God in, and it's so wonderful that we don't feel like it would be awkward if someone was a guest or a visitor to come into a quote-unquote business meeting. We want to just boast about what Jesus has done this year. So would that be okay with you if you come at 10 a.m. and we have a business meeting? Our special guest speaker, Bryant Eaton over there, will, <laughs> the chairman of our board, uh, will call the meeting to order. Uh, we'll get to you, those, those of you who, who want it, especially those that are members. You'll have the minutes of our previous meeting. If you would be so kind, um, if you are a member, to just check in before you walk in, um, that gives us the opportunity to allow you to take a vote of confidence for our upcoming deacons. And this is what I, um, my, my next point is this. We have um, four deacon nominees that you all uh, brought to the table. We were going to take three, but after Scott and I interviewed each one of them, we're like, we're taking all four. These are amazing men of God. And so if it's okay with you, and you can, you can indicate if it's okay with you by a vote of confidence, we have currently three exiting the board, um, but our board is comprised currently of six people. So those three exiting would allow us to take on four, which would be a better balance for the board, making a total of seven, which is okay for our constitution and bylaws. Is everybody tracking with all this? Okay, so I want to introduce you to those um, who we have nominated. Some you'll know by face, others by name, um, but we have pictures of them. A few of them are traveling today, but if we could get those slides up. Um, the first one, drum roll please. All right, there's Aryan Gyasi and his family. The next one please, uh, Christian Baker. The next one, you know this guy. And the next, um, Isaac Novella and his family, Katie and his kids. 
What's exciting about um, who the Lord has brought to the surface for leadership in this season is that each one brings a unique perspective and a unique gift. Some have been in the church for a few years. Others, like John, um, have been here for many, many years. And together, we see God bringing the gifts and talents together for a season that we're in. And you know, um, we say this time and time again, Scott and I were reflecting on it. You never know what's going to come in the years. There's three years that this, um, these particular deacons will be there. And God has something specific in mind with their gift and skill set to help lead us through this next season. So you'll have a chance to confirm these selections by just um, taking a vote of confidence next Sunday. So that's it for me on Family Matters. Let's get into the Word of God. Amen? Amen. So if you would turn with me to John chapter 5. There's a a, a famous um, scripture I like to put up on the screen right now. It's... God helps those who help themselves. Can we put that up there? God helps those who help themselves. I'm so glad that you laugh because it's not a scripture at all. It's a quote. It's a quote from, um, fa- made famous by Ben Franklin, Benjamin Franklin in, in, um, in the, uh, what's the almanac that, Poor Richard's Almanac, right? And why, while I believe that there's no shortage of scripture that um, helps us to realize that we're not permitted to be lazy as Christians, you guys know that, right? Sometimes we use things as a cop-out and saying, oh, I've got this to do or that to do or these bills to pay. God will get it. I'm just giving it to the Lord, you know? Yes, give it to the Lord and then get to work, right? Get to work and, and, and do what the Lord tells you to do to be responsible for the things that he's put before you. Proverbs speak to this thing about laziness. But that's not the message, the overarching message of the Bible, is it? And have you heard people say that before? It's like the Bible says, God helps those who help themselves, right? That becomes more of like a, almost like a cop-out or an excuse. Like, come on, man. It's, it would be better just to say, hey, you're probably being a little lazy in this area. Maybe you should be more motivated and so forth. But the overarching scripture, uh, excuse me, message of the gospel is clearly that God helps those who cannot help themselves. Isn't that true? Um, and we saw that last week in the, in the account of the one who was par- paralyzed, or as the scripture in the ESV says, an invalid. They were unable to move for 38 years, unable to help themselves. And what does Jesus do? He helps, right? He comes in and he brings healing to them. And um, I I wanted to just bring this Romans passage to you. You know it, but this really reinforces the gospel to us. The fact that um, he helps us when we can't help ourselves. Let me read it to you. It's in Romans chapter 5. And verse 6 says this. For while we were still weak, the NIV says, while we were still powerless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. How many of you are grateful for that? At just the right time. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the message of Jesus. And when we get into this chapter, coming on the heels of this miracle that Jesus did, which I would think and you would think that if somebody who couldn't move for 38 years miraculously gets to pick up their bed and walk, that there would be amongst the synagogues in Jerusalem and everywhere that that within earshot, like celebration of the goodness of God, that somebody was miraculously healed. Wouldn't you think that? 
But man, the media, right? The social media at the time twisted it and, and made it in such a way that this thing that was a miracle turned into a scandal. And what was the scandal? He did it on the Sabbath. Like, he did it on the Sabbath. Jesus broke a rule. And when he broke a rule, it was something that was so offensive to the Pharisees who were so concerned with the keeping of the rule that they were blinded to what was really going on. And it says it very clearly in Scripture that all the more from this point forward they wanted to kill Jesus because he claimed equality with God. Now this becomes the turning point in Jesus' ministry. Let's look at, at verse 18 as we get into the next several verses. It says, this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. I've said this before, and I'll say it again because I think it's important, that many times pastors or, or teachers of the Bible really take a lot of shots at the Pharisees, right? And, it, it's like, um, and, and it's like an easy target because Jesus speaks very harshly to them. And we use it as an application point to say, hey, don't be legalistic or don't miss Jesus because you're connected to laws. And all that is true. But as I read this, and just as an out-of-the-gate application point, I want you to know that these Pharisees absolutely were doing what they thought was right to do. They were doing what they thought was right to do based on their knowledge, based on their training, and based on their situation in life. They weren't out trying to cook up a scandal. They thought they were eradicating blasphemy. They thought that they were removing something that was wrong. Now, why is that important? If Pharisees thought that, we need to be careful in our own lives to watch for blind spots. We need to be careful in our own lives to allow our experiences to dictate what we think is right and true, even when Jesus is going to show how what they thought was right and true was contrary to scriptures, not just his moment in speaking the word of God, but contrary to the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Are you tracking with me? So let me pose it this way. Is it possible that we could be hanging on to something so tight and we could be wrong? Is there, is there something in, in the foundations of you as a follower of Christ that are willing to humbly approach Scripture, to humbly approach the presence of God, and maybe, just maybe, to let go of some things as the Holy Spirit pushes on them? I'm not suggesting that you reform all of your theologies or thoughts. We know that there are immovable, unshakable, unshakable things we learned at the men's retreat such a great metrics for that. We learned that there are those things that are, are our blood, right? The atonement, the trinity, salvation by grace and grace alone. These things will always be. You're never going to shake that. You're never going to move from that. There's a series of next things that, that have to do with ink, right? These are personal convictions, things that are, are your interpretation of scripture, and you shouldn't move from that. You should stay, stay true to what the Holy Spirit is leading you into areas of freedoms and things that one might have the freedom to do one thing while another doesn't have the freedom. You shouldn't just stop because one has freedom and one doesn't. You should stay true to that. But there's a third category that we learned about, right, men? The third category was that of pencil. Pencil. And that means that there are things that we, that good people find different interpretations of as they read through Scripture. And sometimes we can, as a, as a church, 
as an individual, we can make the mistake of taking a pencil issue and turning it into a blood issue, and that's where there becomes massive disunity, hatred, discord, weird stuff that people say to one another, and it brings kind of a, a, a dark cloud over the body of Christ, which is meant to be a bright light shining and bringing people to Jesus. Is this making any sense? And so even as I looked at this first point, I thought, man, we've got to be careful and hold our things before the Lord, our thoughts, our ideas, and that we, we bring them humbly before God and say, Lord, help, help me shape my theology, help me shape my decisions, not on tradition, not on what I like or dislike, but on the word of God and on the conviction and the, the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to God's truth. That's what we signed up for. And so these Pharisees are an example to us that it's possible that you think you're doing the right thing, but you've moved past and you can't even see Jesus any longer. And so Jesus, um, he, he addresses this, and it's, it's, um, it, it reads like a lot of red on your page. If you have red letters in, in your Bible, um, it doesn't read like a dialogue, it reads like a monologue. And some scholars would say that maybe there's a rhetorical question there. And the rhetorical question is this, that the Pharisees are going like, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And Jesus goes, okay, I'm going to show you who I am. I'm going to tell you who I am. And so he gets the most of the words. And so the very first thing that he does is give a truly, truly. And whenever you throw a truly, truly out there, you know, and he has about 20 of them in John uh, truly, truly, literally translated from the Greek is amen and amen, so be it and so be it. It's like, listen up, I'm about to school you. I've got something to say. And so he throws down a truly, truly, and then he proceeds to take what was maybe like um, a controversial issue, and then he blows it up. There's a theory in conflict that sometimes if you have a small problem, make it a bigger one so you can solve it. But when you keep like a small problem under the surface, you just have to deal with maintenance of a small problem for a long time. So sometimes it's good just to let that giant rise up so you know what the giant really is. And I think Jesus employs that. He's like, you think we have a little controversy? Listen up, I'm about to make a really big controversy. And I love Jesus for it. This is what he says, truly, truly, this is important. I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that son, that the son does likewise. You have to put yourself in that setting. The accusation is he calls God his father. And now he's not, and he's calling God his equal. And now he's, and maybe the understanding in this example might help us. He's not just saying, I do whatever God tells me to, like a, a faithful son. He does that. But it's more in tune with, you know what like um, CarPlay is, like on Apple CarPlay in your car? No? Okay. <laughs> Google it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> okay. You know what Bluetooth is? Okay. So... Apple CarPlay is super cool because, you know, you put your car, your thing on your phone, and then you have this screen probably too big in your car. Like, it doesn't seem like screens are getting bigger and bigger. Like, where will they stop, you know? But anyways, you, on the screen, you have a mirrored image of what your phone is. And so if you want to get your maps, you're not, like, looking at your phone. You're looking at the screen or your contacts or whatever else. They'll even read your text to you. The idea is this, that that's the sync that's there. Does that make sense? 
that, that the Father and the Son are linked. And Jesus makes it really clear later in John. He says, hey, Philip, you want to know what God looks like? Me. You've seen God if you've seen me. And so he's starting this process, and you can only get the feeling that the, the Pharisees are just really like churning about internally as they're like, you said what? Because these things are, are um, words spoken that carry with it uh, the punishment of being stoned, right? They're probably looking for, for rocks to pick up, to start throwing at them. I mean, they're, they're, there's a, a, a visceral reaction to his words, no doubt. And then Jesus continues on with some other words, but, but there's a, a line of logic that John employs as he brings us through this. And this is why I, I, I'm really excited to share these things with you, because if you've ever felt like, a, um, I, I wonder if Jesus is real, if you've ever felt like, I wonder if Jesus really is God, if you've ever heard people say, Jesus never claims to be God, maybe another religion or somebody who wants to debate you, which I'm not a big fan of a debate for the sake of debate, for winning, but I am for the, the, the bringing about of truth and for the foundation that you can have in what you believe and why you believe it. But Jesus makes it very clear that he is God. And if you're looking for the proof text to, to where Jesus claims to be God, you just read the Gospel of John starting from the very beginning, and he carries this idea all the way through. But different preachers throughout time, going all the way back to the late 1700s, early 1800s, there's documentation of this line of logic being brought out to the people by a Scottish um, minister. And then later, a man named Watchman Nee, who you, a theologian you may have heard of. But, but probably our favorite one and most famous is C.S. Lewis. Who doesn't know about C.S. Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity makes this claim of logic. And he says that Jesus is either a liar this is, feels weird to say it. Jesus is lying. Jesus is a lunatic because the words that he's about to say are like, whoa, these are some pretty awesome claims. He's either a lying person, he's either a lunatic, or he's the Lord. This is just where you are left with as you read this. And the original reader has to go, what do I do with this information? And so we know, and, and history shows us, and the Word of God shows us, that he's not lying. Because the things that he predicted and said he would do, for example, his death and burial and resurrection, he actually did. And this is not, like, debatable. This is factual. Not only in, in the Word of God, but extra-biblical literature leads to the understanding that this really happened. So we know he's not a liar. We're, we're convinced that he's not a lunatic. He's not crazy. People don't follow and mass somebody like him and, and are willing to lay down their lives for him and the words that he says make sense and they bring life and hope to people that so much so that people aren't even that don't even claim to be Christian if you look at statistics are pretty okay with Jesus as a historical figure does that make sense and so they know like he this wasn't illogical or crazy so you're left with the third option what's the third option he's the Lord He's the Lord. And so Jesus now will take the, the religious leaders through a very detailed and step-by-step -step argument um, of, of his lordship, of who he is in Christ. Are you still with me? Yes. So let's read in, in verse 20 together. It says this, For the, the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you will marvel. 
It's kind of like Jesus is saying, you know that healing I just did on the Sabbath? Just now, the one you're really upset about? Buckle up, because I'm just getting started, right? That's what he's saying. God's on the move. And then he says in verse 23, excuse me, 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, this is getting dangerous now, so also the Son gives life to all whom, whom he will. They have got to be stirring now. It's like, okay, we thought that you were claiming that you were equal to the Father. Now you're talking resurrection talk and that you give life. And then he goes even deeper. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Straight up call out at that point. Now he's saying, hey, if you disrespect me, you are disrespecting God. How would you feel if you knew that you knew what you believe was right? You were rock solid in it and you're ready to pick up a rock and get this guy out of the, the culture. If you're hearing these things, he's doubling down, tripling down. And then he says, truly, truly, throws another amen and amen at him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. After Jesus gives a lot of his provocative things, then he even, he, he, for them, and the whole audience is saying like, hey, all this is true, but here's my hope piece. Here was what I'm saying to you, that if you believe in me, if you believe these words that I'm saying, it's not going to, judgment's not going to come to you. You're going to pass from death to life. I think it's important to just stay on track, so I want to just put this slide up to say what's clear at this point. So what's clear at this point is that everything that an Orthodox Jewish follower, namely a Pharisee, everything they would believe about God, Jesus just said, I am that. Okay? Everything that an Orthodox person, Orthodox meaning, hey, we're straight as an arrow. This is historically what we believe about God. Jesus addresses. The first thing that he says is, um, that they would understand is that God is the creator of life, right? God is the creator and sustainer of life. They would believe that. And now Jesus goes, I'm the creator and sustainer of life. Secondly, they would believe that God is the only one who can resurrect or bring back to life those that are dead. Do you remember that the Pharisees believed in resurrections, but the Sadducees are sad, you see? Why? They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees did, and they only believed that God and God alone could resurrect. And now what does Jesus say? He later said, I am the resurrection and the life. The third thing that is clear about what Jesus just said is that he is the, only, the one and only true judge. This is what they believed about God. Car play, synced up. When you see one, you see the other. John is giving us in, insight into that precious and mysterious Trinitarian relationship, the Trinity between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how the whole thing works. So in these few short sentences, um, Jesus claims to be basically God. He's like, couldn't get more God, right? I am. But then he goes even further. Are you ready for more? I'll stop right now. All right. Just kidding. I, I, I put in my notes here, he continues on with the logic bomb, Right? Because he's dropping bombs on these guys. And this is what he says. Truly, truly. Should we say truly, truly together? Truly, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, like, listen to this. This is good stuff I'm about to tell you. I say an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27 is really important. Here's what it says. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Everybody say, Son of Man. man. That means something to us, but that meant something completely different to the original here. The original here was very, very understanding and knew the Torah, knew the first five books of the Bible, knew the prophets. And the prophet Ezekiel prophesies about one that is to come. Can I read it to you? I'm going to do it anyways. Uh, Daniel chapter 7. So now they're like so frustrated, no doubt. I'm assuming this. I can only assume it. They're frustrated and they're inside with a reaction to these words of Jesus. But they're like, oh, no, it's making sense. What do I do? Because his logic is so pure. He references Daniel 7. This is awesome. Daniel's being prophetic about one to come, a Messiah. He says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and he was given to, and it was to him given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. Of all those beautiful descriptions of the ancient of days, the one that's important for you to remember from what was just up there is there's being one called what? The son of Jesus dropped it. He called him, he referred to himself as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Is this stuff interesting to you? I'm pumped as, I'm, as I was studying. I'm like, then in verse 28 it says, but wait guys, don't marvel at this. For an hour is coming. This is even more. Remember, he's escalating the logic bomb. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. What does that mean? You know, when you're reading your Bible, do you ever just read it and go, huh, let's get back into the Psalms, right? (laughs) You, You read something like this and go, wait, what? Resurrection talk, the resurrection of the dead, um, judgment. This is not a popular word in today's society. I don't think it ever has been popular in popular culture. Jesus makes these statements and he makes these claims that are important. And they're important to talk about in church. They're important to talk about in these moments. They're important for us to take pause and go, this stuff is real. This is more real than the air that we breathe. Jesus, throughout this gospel, continues to talk about abundant life and what? Eternal life. There's something hardwired in us that when we begin to think in terms of eternity, it's very uncomfortable and very wonderful. And Jesus is saying in love, Jesus isn't angry. Jesus isn't trying to be the smartest guy in the room. He's not trying to be um, 
provocative just for the sake of being controversial. Jesus is saying, hey, all this logic, you really need to understand this because it matters. It's a matter of life and death. And when Jesus says something is a matter of life and death, he's not just saying life and death like you, 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 you get sick or you get in an accident. He is talking about eternal life and death. And he presents two judgments. And it can be easily misunderstood if you don't take the full counsel of Scripture. If you read this on its face, you might go, oh, if I do good, then I'll go to heaven. This is a, a common conversation um, that I think amongst people who would claim to be spiritual, they would land at this comfortable space to say, as long as you're a good person, good people go to heaven and bad people don't get to go there. They spend an eternity away from God in a place called hell. Are you familiar with this line of logic? It would be really comfortable for all of us if that was true. But Jesus didn't come to the world to make us all feel comfortable. He came into this world to speak truth to us that would save our lives forever. So that's why this is like this awkward pause to go, hey, truth, truth bomb, okay? There's two resurrections. This is the classic good versus evil, right? That Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves so that he could also deal with evil once and for all, right? Good overcomes evil. And so when he talks about those who do good, it isn't that like, um, you know, I mow my lawn, all my neighbors love me, I pay my taxes, I don't cheat the government, I don't say bad words, I don't use tobacco products, you know, whatever you might call good. The good is the one who accepted Christ, believed in him, embraced the good that Jesus came to do to overcome evil. The evil is the one who said, I reject that. I reject the one who's come because I've got it on my own. And to reject that leads you to a place of judgment where judgment is the dealing with evil once and for all. God never intended for it to happen. It wasn't his original design and plan. But it's a reality that everyone should pause and feel awkward about for a moment. Because that awkwardness leads us to a deep relief to hear the words of Jesus, to go, I don't have to stay in that awkwardness. I don't have to stay in fear of death, in fear of the future. I can rest easily into the good of God who sent Jesus to die for me so that I can have eternal life. And he wants that for everybody you remember one of our famous passages from John? God so loves the world. And this is why he brings Jesus. It's sobering. And if we were just to stop there, it would be enough, right? But, but Jesus then goes even another layer with them and pleading with them, just as he's pleading with our hearts even now. Jesus says in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not only my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I just got to pause and say, I, I, I don't know that any person could genuinely stand and say that they completely understand the mystery of the Trinity, but there is such a beauty of relationship that you see modeled between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the same beautiful um, imagery that we get from marriage, right? This beautiful um, submission to God, this 
connection with two lives becoming one flesh, right? And, and this sinking and mirroring of two lives. Isn't it like a beautiful thing? The Trinity is amazing, which, by the way, tomorrow is my wedding anniversary to my beautiful wife, Rochelle. 24 years. 24 years. You should clap for Rochelle. <laughs> that is the truth. Terry's <laughs> like, yeah, we are, dude. We know. Jesus says these things, and then he says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, but there's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. In these last um, section of scripture to the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to come in for a landing, it's Jesus lays out a really good system of logic that others have been able to see throughout modern history. They've been able to say, oh, wow, that logic makes sense. He lays that out. And he says, this, is, this has got to be true that I'm the Lord. Then he goes on to say, and if that's not enough for you, I'm going to bring some credible witnesses to the table, right? It's a kind of a courtroom scene. And he says, let me, let me bring some witnesses. Let me start with, with a guy that you used to like, right? Because uh, they used to like John the Baptist. They said, oh, cool, look at all these people who were getting baptized until he got dangerous for them and started creating the road ahead for Jesus. And Jesus speaks to that. He says, um, you sent to John... And he has come and borne witness to the truth. This is verse 34. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Speaking of John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice a while in his light till it got uncomfortable for you, and you didn't like the wild man anymore. Verse 35. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Okay, do you see what's happening in that little paragraph? One, he's saying, remember that super popular guy, John, who like stirred everything up? He talked about me. He said that I was the one who he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and tie my shoes. You liked him for a minute, then you didn't like him. So he's a witness. Now... If you don't accept John's witness, accept the miracles that I've been doing. So you've got the witness of John. You've got the witness of the miracles of Jesus, one that they were just on the heels of. In Matthew later, um, Jesus speaks clearly to, and he says, um, the fact that he heals on the Sabbath, he makes this statement, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, right? Amazing. So you have John's witness. You have the witness of the very works or the miracles that he's doing. They bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Verse 37, and the Father who has sent me himself has borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, um, his form you have never seen. And verse 38 says, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he has sent. Total call out, right? You don't even know him because you can't see him. He's standing right in front of you. Jesus say, hello, God's right here. But then he gets to their guy, Moses, right? One of their heroes, their prophet. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and that they bear witness, and, and, and it is they that bear witness about me. Excuse me. So you have, you have John the Baptist, you have the signs that he's done, and you have the Father, and now he's like, you have the Scripture. So it's written throughout Scripture about me. And then he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. That'd be kind of hard to hear when you're mad at somebody. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you did not receive me. And if I've come, and, and if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God, only God? In verse 45, do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There, now here it comes. This is his big ending. And mine too. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed in Moses, you'd believe in me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe in my words? Big stuff. We can put up this just so we're staying clear. Um, the, the witnesses. John is a witness. The signs are a witness. Or the miracles. The scripture is a witness. And Moses is a witness. He had already re referred to the prophet Ezekiel prior, but now he refers to Moses. And when I got to this point, I thought, well, did they have to go fishing for it? You know, you, you want to be like, could they see, like, where did Moses write about Jesus? And there's good reason to think that he wrote about Jesus all the way in Genesis, right? Moses was credited with writing the first five books of the Bible. And, and you know, you can see in there that God refers to himself in the plural when he's creating mankind in his own image. John makes a link to that and saying that the word was there in the beginning. So you could see all that. But that, that might take a few steps to get there. Then I found this in Deuteronomy chapter 18. And those of you that are Bible scholars are like, duh, dude, I already knew this. But I'm going to say it to you just for funsies. Deuteronomy chapter 18 and verse 15. Listen to these words, okay? Now think about Jesus and listen to Moses' words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your brothers it is him that you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. Verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, referring to Moses, from among their brothers. And hear this, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak them to all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words of what he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Sound a little bit like Jesus? Okay, well, how about this one? Verse 34. Excuse me, chapter 34, verse 10 and through 12. And there has not arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, None like him for, listen to this, all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent to him in the land to Pharaoh and his servants into his land. And for all the mighty power and the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. 
How were Moses and Jesus alike? Moses and God face to face. Jesus and God synced up, one and the same. Moses doing signs and wonders, a ton of them, which, which gave witness to who he was. Jesus doing signs and wonders, giving witness to who he was. Moses, like no other in the, in, in the Bible, was among the prophets at least. The prophets would usually say, hey, this is what you should or shouldn't do. Moses is like, I am the intercessor. God, please show your faithfulness. Don't wipe them out. What does Jesus do? He intercedes for us before the Father. Is this not cool to you? This is amazing. This is rock solid for us to be able to go, Jesus is God. And so our belief in Jesus, if you've struggled, listen to the words of Jesus. Like, don't listen to me, but listen to his clear words about himself. He's not a liar. He's not crazy. He is the Lord. He's done great things. They were written about even before he shows up for these people. By the way, Jesus shows up in the Old Testament too, which is a whole other sermon series. But then he doesn't just show up for them and, and, and show himself and say who he is and bring attention to how they should know him. Then he also gives witnesses of others who see who he is. And so our belief in Jesus is rock solid. There are these words that keep it clear about who he claims to be at this point in his ministry. And we have a slide to say these things. That one, he is the judge, the righteous judge. Right? That two, Jesus is the healer and miracle worker. Three, Jesus is the creator and, and sustainer of life. Four, Jesus has resurrection power. For, for just to be clean, I was going to say the resurrector, but I didn't know if that was a word or not, so I said resurrection power. And last and final, Jesus is God. It's just not weak. This argument is not weak. Do you realize that? It is rock solid. Christ is my firm foundation, the rock on which I stand. I love that song. In fact, can you guys come back up? Can you play that song? Would that be okay? Um, there's two things that I'd like to do in response to God's word today. One, I, I pray that it, it hits you as, as hard as it hit me. We, we need stability in an unstable time. Let me say that again. We need stability in an unstable time. We, we're not going to find stability in our own intellect. We're not going to find stability in our own abilities to create plans that keep us out of trouble. We're going to find stability in Christ and Christ alone. It's a different, entirely different kind of stability. It's a peace that makes no sense, right? I love that in that song. Because these things that we hold to, these things that we believe, they are throughout all culture and time applicable in this season, in the seasons to come, should the Lord tarry, in the seasons past. They work. They work because they're truth, right? They're truth. And God gives us the the great opportunity to find our peace in him, our comfort in him. And I want to just say these two responses to the Lord. Number one, if you've been searching, if you've been listening, if you've been looking, maybe you're online and you've been searching and looking and listening, don't rely on my ability to like say the right things to get you to respond. Listen to Jesus' words when he makes those really 
powerful statements about judgment, about good and evil, and about eternity. He isn't saying these things because he's mean. He isn't saying these things because he's saying them for one reason. His whole purpose on the earth was to bring life and hope and freedom to you. I heard a powerful testimony of someone who was saying, like, I had gotten free of a lot of things. I stopped doing them, but I never experienced freedom until I came to Jesus. You get what I'm saying? There's some things you can do on your own. You can do sobriety to a certain degree on your own. But you can be free of drugs and alcohol and the identity and the guilt and shame when you come to Jesus. You can do behavioral modification to stop things. You can create new behaviors. But you can be free of guilt and shame and the heavinesses of past choices when you come to Jesus. Do you realize like Jesus changes you? And that changes for the good. It's from the inside out. It's the, it's the testimony of one who was once a horrible person and they could tell all their horrible stories. But when they start to tell them, you're like, no way, nuh-uh. Because maybe it was somebody who, you know, I don't know. I used to think when I was a kid, like it was so cool if somebody had a really gnarly, like bad, they did really, really bad stuff. And they look like they did bad stuff. But I love the testimony of someone who doesn't even look like that and they did it. Why? Because Jesus absolutely changed and transformed them. Jesus changes and transforms. And so the response to God's word is this, that whosoever will come. It's an invitation. It's an invitation. There aren't like a ton of things you have to do. Belief is what Jesus reinforces. Believe me and accept and receive. And so I want to invite you to that. Secondly, if you're finding yourself in situations of deep anxiety, you're finding yourself in situations of instability, and I think there's been an onslaught of the enemy just trying to get us to doubt our faith, to deconstruct our faith in unhealthy ways. If you're finding yourself in that category, hear the words of Jesus. Hear the clarity by which he explains himself. Hear the the logic for us as humans that we can go, oh, I can sink my teeth into this. I can really be grounded in this and find stability and rootedness in Christ and Christ alone. Amen? As we sing this song, I just give you space to, to respond however the Lord leads you. Would you stand with me?
Jesus, thank you that that couldn't be more true of you and your own claims. You will never fail us. God, we respond to you. Lord, we respond to you in just surrendering our hearts afresh and new, allowing the work of the Spirit in us, even in this moment, to accept the claims that you made, not just because you won the case, but because they're true. It's easy for you to do that because it's true. And so may your words become life to us today. God, I pray for those that are hearing these words and maybe for the first time or maybe hearing who you are in a new way for the first time. But I pray that drawing of the Holy Spirit to lead them to a place of, yeah, why not? I want to follow you. I want to surrender to you. Jesus, come and meet us in this place. You are our firm foundation. We honor you and we thank you, God. We thank you for your word, which is a lamp and a light. We thank you for hope in hopeless situations. We thank you for direction when we feel completely lost. We thank you for the, the freedom that comes in knowing that our, our lives are sealed with you for eternity and the hope that comes along with that. Pray that you'd release that over us and remind us of that this week. And for those maybe who've yet to experience that relationship, Lord, I pray that you would lead them into it in a response that could come. But yes, I want to follow you. So bless your people now, God. We thank you for these things, and we honor you together in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen and amen. Amen. Thank you.
Wow. 